Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Clash. On Monday's episode, we had a hell of a time aboard the Event Horizon. And today, we're turning up the heat on board the Icarus 2 on its mission to reignite the sun and save humankind. Because from 2006, we're basking in sunshine. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission reignite the sun before it's too late welcome to Icarus 2 so if you wake up one morning and it's a particularly beautiful day you'll know we made it we'll have a winner at the end of the show but which film will it be let's find out it's Clash of the Titles the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. For seven years, I spoke to God. He told me to take you all to heaven. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Silly. Uh, we are recording remotely today. Just uh, a warning, I guess, in case things start to behave weirdly. That's why. But, you know, we'll power through. And uh, very quickly, that bit that I say at the start of the second show every week that I hope you listen to. But if you don't, that's fine. But if you do, it's really useful. If you could subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Apple, Spotify or other. And if indeed that platform allows you to give us a little rating or even a review, it's so useful and really appreciate it. So if you could do that, that would be great. Another quick reminder, all January, we are doing Clash Podder picks. These are pairings that you have picked for us to put up against each other. Christopher, who gave us this incredible pairing of my darling Event Horizon and this movie Sunshine? Not one, not two, but three people suggested this pairing, and that was Samantha, Tom, and Imran. 
Thank you, Samantha, Tom, and Imran. Uh, I got to talk about Event Horizon on Monday, so I can pretty much leave the show happy now. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to stick around. Shall we get straight into this? Because I did Event Horizon. Chris, uh, you've been gifted sunshine. So why don't you begin by taking us on a journey? Our sun is dying. The planet faces extinction. So we sent a crew into space with a bomb designed to create a star within a star to save humanity. But they disappeared. So now we're sending another crew with another bomb. These eight astronauts, who are very brave and very good looking, face moral quandaries and have frequent philosophical debates in a film that asks big questions about science and religion and the worth of one life versus the survival of many. Then Mark Strong turns out the lights and chases women around a spaceship with a knife at the end. <laughs> oh, it's such a different ending to the rest of the film. Um, so, Vicky, let's start with you. Did yeah. you think that Sunshine took place on a submarine? <laughs> now, I thought I'd seen it, but I thought it was set on the moon. No, I have seen it. I have seen it. I can't remember when, um, but I did see it at home. Um, and I was, yeah, I was excited to watch it again. And I think I enjoyed it more a second time. Interesting. Alex, how about you? Yeah, uh, Victoria and I concur. I watched this uh, ages ago and was like, don't like this. Didn't like it. It's not, not, not my thing. Not my cup of tea at all. And then I watched it at the weekend. And, I, I've, you know, I'm a big Event Horizon fan. I, I dare I say that this film possibly scared me a bit more in a different way. Not visceral scares, but... After it had finished, I was left feeling rather uncomfortable uh, for quite a long time afterwards. And every time I closed my eyes, I could see Mark Strong's face, possibly even more than you can see it in the film. Yeah, you can't really see it in the film. You can see his fucking <laughs> arm come off. Is that what you mean? Yeah, no, but it's those, it's those eyes. You know, like they do the video message like they do in Event Horizon, except this one, uh, like instead of the hell orgy, it's just mm. him sort of like like distorted looking at the camera with that sort mm. of like you can just see his eye. That sort of, that freaks me out a lot. Interesting. Um, uh, so I don't think it's any secret that I'm a huge Danny Boyle fan. So I asked to cover this one for work. So I went and saw an early screening of it. And then I went to interview Danny Boyle, who is my very favourite person to interview, and Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, who I hadn't been on the telly. I have mentioned that before. That's, he's not been on the telly when you saw him. No, no. So basically the exciting thing was the bloke from D-Ream is now a scientist. That's what we were all talking about while we were waiting to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think this was kind of a launch pad to actually him getting TV work. Was He did a lot of press for this film. He was obviously the scientific advisor on this one. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was. I was just excited to, spoke, to speak to the guy from D-Ream to, at the time, to be honest. Doesn't um, didn't like Danny Boyle was I think Danny Boyle was saying because he hadn't hit big. There's a really funny interview with Danny Boyle because obviously we all know who Brian Cox is now. It's like the wonder of the universe. But <laughs> at the time, like he was like this sort of like it was the fact that there was a guy who was going round making science cool for people. I even in the press tour for this film, and I think he was going to schools and basically removing this idea that science is men with beards in white coats holding test tubes. And actually, you know, it could be someone who once told us things can only get better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't have the foggiest what he was telling me, but um, he was very nice and very pretty. So uh, 
yeah, so it was um, exciting to meet those guys. And um, yeah, I mean, Brian Cox even does a commentary on the DVD of this, just a, an isolated Brian Cox comment- commentary, which I couldn't be asked to listen to, but I did listen to the Danny Boyle one. So I will have some bits and pieces from that. Um, should we do a bit of the history of the film then? Yeah. Uh, it's written by Alex Garland, who obviously wrote The Beach that Danny Boyle adapted and then collaborated with him on 28 Days Later, which we previously done. And Alex was inspired by an article he read in an American periodical that speculated about what would happen should the sun die. You he see, said, that's, a word that, that's a word that Brian Cox would never use. You see, I'm already like, ugh, periodical. Brian Cox would go, ah, oh, in this amazing pamphlet, a really <laughs> sexy pamphlet. Periodical, don't, don't use it, boring. <laughs> what Garland said, what interested me was the idea that it could get to a point when the entire planet's survival rests on the shoulders of one man and what that would do to his head. I'm already annoyed. Uh, Why wouldn't it be one person? Why wouldn't it be one person? Sorry, let's just get this done now. That obviously annoys the living shit out of me. Why um, why man? You, Why not person? Have, Why not human? Well, Vicky, have you watched the film? It was it was one man, so <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And this is obviously jumping ahead massively, but it annoyed me there as well. It's like God will talk to one man, one human, Mark Strong. Uh, so Danny Boyle, um, <laughs> Alex Garland was interested in this story. He went away and wrote a script and then met with Danny Boyle in a pub on Tottenham Court Road at Christmas 2004. Oh, there there's not very nice pubs on Tottenham Court Road. Surely they could have picked somewhere else. A lot of them are full of UCL students. I used to drink in them. And if I'd seen Brian Cox or Danny Boyle in there and I was full of aftershock, I'd have been right over there going, <laughs> fucking... Danny Boyle, I love chain spotting. Hey! <laughs> uh, Alex gave uh, Danny a 90-page script and Danny Boyle said the concept was quite small. For instance, at the end of the film, the two remaining guys uh, were, were, <laughs> were playing chess as they were flying into the sun. I wanted to make it into an event. Um, Alex Garland is very much an atheist. He believes that science is our god. So Boyle brought a more spiritual dimension to the script and making the sun a godlike presence in the film. Um, yeah. and it was I mean, also- you do pick up on that, don't you? You do pick up on Alex Garland. <laughs> Alex Garland, not, not, not a big fan of God uh, throughout. That, that, that does come across. The only person who's really into God in the movie, also a murderer. So that's very clear. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's a theme Alex Garland comes back to as well is 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 humans thinking they're God as well because obviously that comes up here in Ex Machina. I think there's a bit of a God complex going on in that film. Yeah, don't um, they compare? Doesn't he compare Mark Strong's character? I think I don't think this was Alex Garland actually. This was Danny Boyle. He compares him to a religious fundamentalist. I've got two sets of Danny Boyle quotes here. One is from the comment. One from the commentary, which he obviously did at the time that he sort of just finished the film, and then one is from a book called Danny Boyle in His Own Words by Amy Raphael, which was a few years later <laughs> an extended interview. <laughs> and it's different. It's different. It's different. He's, he's, pick, pick. Pick a different title. Just yeah, me, Danny Boyle, so. in his own words, <laughs> by an entirely different human. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. He's much more honest uh, about this film in that second uh, set of quotes um, when he's had a few years to sort of stew upon what happened because uh, this film took a year to set up. It took almost a year to film and then it was over a year in post-production. And wow. uh, Danny Boyle did not enjoy making it. 
Um, one of the difficulties he said was 2001 Solaris and Alien. He said, those films were a big obstacle. They're titans hovering above you. You can't avoid huh. them and you're constantly bumping into them. And it's difficult to step out of their shadow. Mm. So he yeah. felt that a lot of pressure in that respect. Did um, he not also, also, um, also Event Horizon, I, I think he put on that list. <laughs> Surely. Sure, he was like, he was like I, I don't know that I should be making this film because the, 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 the behemoth that is Event Horizon, the perfect space movie, does bear an uncanny resemblance to my film, which is always going to be the lesser of the two. Yeah, the four Titans, 2001, Solaris, Alien and Event Horizon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is my last quote from him before we get into the film. He said, um, sunshine drove me mad. It was insane. We arrived before the sun rose. We left after it set. It was eternal night. And she asks, was this the hardest film you ever directed? And he says, by a long, long way. So, I don't understand the talk- quote. He, he, so he did a full day's work. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> what does that no, they did he, 12 think, hours work a day. Is that what you're saying? But, no, but at night. They did it at night. He never saw the sun. And oh, imagine making a, making a movie about the sun, but not seeing the sun. Well, that's right. enough to drive you mad. That's insane. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's crazy. All right, okay. it's, it's, it's it's the sun that drives you mad in the movie, and yet he was going <laughs> mad not seeing the sun. How do you make wow. a movie like in those circumstances? I don't know. So let's talk about Sunshine. Uh, we start with an Alex Zane favourite uh, mentioned in uh, the first episode, and that is the Fox logo being used in the movie. <laughs> um, but did you it's notice, cool. Alex, <laughs> did you notice that they run it backwards here? No. What? Yeah, what do you mean? Danny Ball said no one notices. Well, it, 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 you normally go, I think, from the sun into the Fox logo, but here you go from the Fox logo into the sun. Oh. Cool. Um, but I he heard, said because I've... because the music is playing forwards, no one really notices that. What a waste of time. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> he says that, it, well, you're, you're, you're meant to think we're closing in on the sun, but really it's a spaceship. Okay. Yeah, a the twist. It, the wonderfully named Icarus 2. <laughs> <laughs> so talk me through that, because you said to me before, because I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it's called the Icarus 1 for a start, and then definitely not number two, because A, mm. it's confusing when they're talking between the ships, but are you like, why do you want it to fail? Why have you called it that? But you said there was a proper reason. Yes, Danny Boyle uh, says on that commentary, he says, the idea of naming it the Icarus was to remind the crew of their humanity and their humility and that failure was the most likely outcome, which is oh, harsh. Okay. But, yeah. but why, well, it should, honestly, it should be called the happy or <laughs> su- success ship. Success, yeah, success. <laughs> or at least have that fact mentioned. Like, oh, guys, just FYI, this is called the Icarus because we might fuck this up. Not just, like, have it hanging there. It's like, didn't no one think to run that past a focus group or whatever? But the other thing Indeed. is that they make they make a point, like Danny Boyle makes a point of having done his research on this movie and speaking to astronauts and NASA, the, the, the biggest obstacle uh, that you face with space travel is the psychological impact uh, of, of being out there uh, on yeah. your own sometimes or with a very limited number of people. So surely with that in mind, you give them everything they need to not yeah. go mad. And being yeah. on a ship about someone who died the closer he got to the sun is, is <laughs> it's just a, it's a bad call. It's a it's bad, a no, it's, no. It's, it's a really bad call. And he, I know he's like, but I wanted to make it bleak. I'm like, 
But they wouldn't. They wouldn't want to make it bleak. <laughs> no. So, uh, as I said in my intro, the, the mission is um, the, the, the sun's dying. We face extinction. The original Icarus project um, was sent on a mission to restart the sun seven years ago, but they were lost before they reached it. Um, 16 months previous to the start of the film, um, a crew of eight um, left the, the, the solar winter on Earth uh, with a payload uh, that was as big, uh, a bomb as big as Manhattan Island. And the purpose mm. is to create a star within a star. So it's essentially eight astronauts strapped to the back of a bomb. That's cool. Um, and it looks cool when you first see the ship and it's behind that massive solar shield. It's a really yeah. nice design. Uh, and let's talk about the crew a little bit. So we've got a very diverse crew. Uh, the idea that Alex Garland and Danny Boyle had was that in 50 years' time, only um, Asian economies would have enough money to be able to, to send off a ship like this. So we've got quite yeah. a multicultural crew. And also he wanted an ensemble. He wanted a lot of equality on the ship. He didn't want any big stars, so he could then um, kill them in any order he wanted. And obviously, I one think, or two of these actors have become big stars, but you know there wasn't a, a name above the title actor in this movie mm. at the time. Yeah, I think he was told that also Brazil and India would also have huge space agencies by this point in the future, and he went, "It's diverse enough." <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, I've got my diversity. We got. I don't need any more. There's, there's, we've done it. We've got enough." So the first person we meet is the doctor slash psychological officer, Searle, um, played by <laughs> Cliff Curtis. Um, we meet him. He's looking directly into the sun, wearing a pair of sunglasses. First question. Uh, what did anyone do their due diligence in selecting these people? Because from the minute you meet the ship's psych officer, you go, well, he's nuts. He's clearly, <laughs> he's he's not well. Uh, and this is before anyone else has even gone slightly nuts. You're like, I mean, within 20 minutes, skin is peeling off his face and no one goes, you're probably getting a bit much sun, so probably probably stop <laughs> sitting there, turning the filters off that window. You nutter. You're the psych officer. Yeah, he's taking a shower in light. Um, he talks about the light enveloping him, uh, becoming him. Um, yeah, he's he's going quite mad. Uh, there wasn't a psych <laughs> officer on the Icarus one. There is on one on this one, and he's losing the plot. Um, I mean, and it Fidus really was. It, it was his job. He should be the one to go, like, do you think... Uh, that perhaps it was calling the first ship Icarus that made everyone mad. Uh, in which case, let's let's call it something else. It's, that's his job, but obviously he didn't do that because he's nuts. But that is a problem, isn't it? What do you do if the first person to lose their mind on your spaceship is the psych officer? Uh, in this uh, film, you would just have a vault to kill him, I think. Yeah, um, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. See how that goes down. I did want to have uh, a little a little moan about well not a moan so much as an observation about the the chain of command because I don't know why it irked me so much but I listened to a very interesting program on Woman's Hour about um, what it takes to make a good astronaut and it isn't individuality and it isn't even a very particular set of skills it's the unfailing ability to be self critical self-aware and act as part of a team because it's the the strength of the team is what makes a mission succeed not having one gifted person who's sort of protected by the others and i've never seen a, t a less cohesive team in my life as the crew of the sun of the icarus 2 and it it made me wonder if they'd done research because 
to be a good astronaut, it's it's been known for a long time that you need to be part of a team. So did they know that, the writers, and disregard it because it's not as exciting? Or did they just not know that? And obviously, because it's a movie, you want to have really strong individual characters instead. Well, I think he gave, he the I think they did ignore that information if they had it because I think the idea here is to give each character their area of own expertise so that they can each have their own personal crisis in that area that kind of can reveal their personality and and give us a bit of drama every ten minutes and I think everyone yeah. does get a little bit a little bit of business to do as the film progresses. Yeah, I just yeah. thought the captain didn't seem like much of a captain either. Like a captain needs to be the person that's like, even if we're all individualistic, even if we're working as a team, ultimately I'm the I'm in charge. And he didn't see what's he called Canada. He just didn't seem very uh, statesman like or captain like or in charge. And some of the decisions they take seem to be like a group decision, which is madness. Like surely that lots of the decisions should be the captain's decision, not what hey gang, what do we all think? But isn't it about him deferring to the person that is best equipped to answer the question? Like the big one is whether they board the Icarus 2, uh, Icarus 1 rather. And he does say, look, the person who is best placed to do this, uh, answer that question, is um, Kappa, Killian Murphy's character. So yeah. so I, I kind of, I, I buy it. I buy it as him. But I think also at this point, you have to remember that Canada has looked into the sun once and is already on his way to becoming Searle Mark II because oh, he's loving true. it. So he yeah. really wants to go to the Icarus one because he's like, I want to just do things that aren't necessarily about the mission because maybe the Icarus one has something to do with the sun, which I'm falling in love with. So I think he's already sort of started yeah. to come apart at the seams. Okay, that makes sense. Let's establish who the characters are, though, uh, before we get any further. So, um, as I mentioned, we've got um, Officer Searle. Uh, next, we meet physicist Kappa, played by Killian Murphy. Uh, we meet him when he's um, doing a video diary to home, telling his family that he's busy saving mankind. Um, in that scene, he reminds us that it takes eight minutes for light to travel from sun to the earth. So if their mission is successful, they will uh, the sky will brighten up eight minutes later. That's very important information very important for later in the film. Um, we meet biologist Corazon, played by Michelle Yeoh, um, who is using plant life to create oxygen on the craft. And as Alex said uh, about those psychological effects um, being very important, um, they spoke to NASA and they said that, you know, rather than having food in packets, as you traditionally see in science fiction, um, the idea is to get the astronauts to grow and prepare their food and lay it out and then clean it away and clean up. That, that rhythm and routine is one of the things that helps keep them sane when they're away for a long amount of time. Mm. Um, it took Kappa an hour to send his message, and now the solar wind is too strong um, for anyone else to send a message. So we meet the engineer Mace, played by Chris Evans, who loses his shit, uh, <laughs> which means we get a scene I, it, of Captain America fighting Scarecrow. <laughs> but he's he is i'm i'm so with mace at that moment because like we he hasn't even seen kappa's message but we've bore witness to a, a message to earth that is at best very pause heavy at worst just like a <laughs> mumble through like uh, like he's like so uh <laughs> mum God, Dad, oh, you know, me, pr- proud of, are you, I want you to be proud 
of me. And you're like, there's a dude outside waiting in line patiently. And you're like, so think about what you're going to say beforehand. The solar winds, they're picking up. Mace needs to go, you idiot. I got a bit angry. <laughs> you got a bit, you got as angry as Mace. <laughs> you need He's, to head to the did, earth did, room, Alex. <laughs> did no one, did, did you not think he was really milking that message? It's like, I was, yeah. But the earth room, I, I, I quite happily spend a lot more of my time in that earth room. It's bloody lovely. It was amazing. I would love to, mm. yeah, to experience something like that. I thought it looked brilliant. I've got a theory about that So he's in gardens and then he's near the sea. And Oh, go on, Alex, sorry. Well, no, I, you, you were about to say, because he's near the sea, isn't he? And he's, yep. it's, he, Mace says uh, it's the, he loves the waves because they, they put him in like the gardens. He's like, no, no, bring the waves back. I want to see the waves like smashing over the seawall. And he finds that calming. And I, I did wonder, because of all the characters, Mace is the one who keeps his cool throughout better than anyone else uh, apart from that little fisty cuffs uh, with Kappa at the start he's sort of he's the one who understands what needs to be done and water is the opposite element to fire and the sun hits people in waves so I wonder if there's a connection there that water is his strength and he's looking at water and he keeps his cool hmm but then water ultimately kills him <gasps> oh Coolant. yeah Coolant kills him, Chris. Coolant. Coolant yeah. is a Coolant. liquid. It's not water. We're back onto, Coolant. We're back Coolant onto the plays a big not, part. Is it, not made of, is it not made of water? I don't know. You've got a chemistry A-level. Is it made of water or not? It is not chemically similar to water, and that is why he freezes <laughs> in it. <laughs> but has it got water in it? Has it got water in it? No. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we know that intonation. That's it, when Alex isn't does, sure, but he's going to stay. It <laughs> does not have water in it, for it is coolant. Okay, fine. fine, fine, fine. <laughs> um, but I like the way those scenes, the idea is in the earth room, you know, he's seen these visuals. It's, we imagine it's CG, but actually they shot that all for real. They took him to a forest and they took him to the Docklands for the wave scenes. So the London <laughs> Docklands. Standing in front of that stuff for real, yeah. <laughs> oh, sure, what a shame. <laughs> uh, and rounding out the cast, we've got the Navigator Trey, uh, played by Dem- Benedict Wong. We've got the Communications Officer Harvey, uh, who's the second in command, played by Troy Garrity, who is Jane Fonda's son, I discovered in my oh, research. Really? What? Oh. <laughs> uh, we've got the pilot, Cassie, that, played by Rose That Roseburn. makes sense. That makes sense because Harvey, the Jane Fonda's son, he does seem a little bit entitled, which you would be if you were Jane Fonda's son. His character is quite entitled. No, he just He's misses his who- family, which you would do if your mum was Jane Fonda, so... <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Although he should have, um, like, he we should got the- know a bit more about space because he'll, he'll have watched Barbarella, so uh, he'll have he'll have, he'll know a bit more about space than the rest of them. Uh, Rose Byrne is our pilot, Cassie. Uh, Hiro, 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 gosh, I'm going to say it wrong. Hirohuki Sanada is Captain Kaneda, and then we also see some video diaries from Captain Pinbacker, played by the aforementioned <laughs> uh, Mark Strong. Uh, I think this is probably the second time I saw Mark Strong in anything after that god-awful Guy Ritchie film, um, Revolver. But he wasn't uh, a sort of... He wasn't a well-known actor at this point. And I think it's funny that he's kind of ultimately the kind of villain in this film because now you know, if you see Mark Strong in a film, you know he's the villain. But back (laughs) then, this is pre-knowing that Mark Strong is the villain in every movie. 
Um, yeah, so fair enough. We didn't have that information. Did you get the reference uh, with his name? Yes. Of course. Does Good. someone want to do say it? Or do, do you just? <laughs> <laughs> I go on, go Vicky. On. It was your. It was. It was your choice. It was. It's from Dark Star. Yeah. Dark Star, bloody Dark Star, and you can hear us talk about Sergeant Woo! Pinback in Dark Star on that episode. Um, <laughs> so they pass by Mercury. That's the first thing that happens, which is beautiful. Um, but like lots of sunshine, it was much better on the big screen than watching it on my TV screen. But well, I love that. I, think the, it still I looks love what. Good. Does it? It's yeah. sort of a weird. It's it's kind of weird because I mean they see Mercury, but Mercury's in silhouette. So, like, you've got the sun behind Mercury and then this little sort of sphere orbiting in front of it. Yeah, I guess so. I think it's more <laughs> the fact... I mean, it's sort of like, all right, that's Mercury. Are we getting any closer? No. <laughs> Maybe you're not the right person for my space mission, actually. I've decided now. You're very ungrateful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just leave me in the Earth room with the waves. I'll see you when we get back to Earth. <laughs> can, can I just say... This is the first. This this is uh, the first of many times that the one person, like Chris Evans, is the out and out full on hero in this movie. Every decision he makes is fundamentally the right decision, and every time something goes wrong, it's because people did not listen to Chris Evans. He he makes the right call every time. Like literally at this point, like later on when he puts the blood on Killian Murphy's hand and goes, "This is all your fault, mate." This is all your bloody fault. He's not wrong. It is because they should never have gone to the Icarus one because they're saving mankind. Yeah, but this this is where the dialogue. I think there's an issue with the structure later when they're like, "Oh, now we have to go to Icarus one." It's like, but we already decided we were going to Icarus one. So structurally, there's a bit of a flaw there. But the dialogue in this scene to convince the audience that it's a good idea, I think, is perfect. Like two last chances are better than one last chance is a brilliant line. And totally sold it to me. Like I, I can see what I can see Macy's point, but I'm so sold by the idea that if we're going to save mankind, it would be better to have two chances. Yeah, agreed, agreed. But it turns out it was the wrong decision, and Chris Evans, had they listened to him, would have been the right decision because they end up using the original bomb anyway. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but he was right. He's such a baby about it, though. The whole film is like, this would never have happened if we hadn't gone to Icarus One. It's like, fucking get over it. Like It was ages ago. When he puts the blood on Killian Murphy's hand, it's like, dude, build a bridge. It's done. Like, that is so over the top. I like it. I'm like, I'm like, I, love, I was like, yeah, Killian Murphy, just be better at operating your bomb. Like you built it. Like why you you didn't know you were going to get two goes. So like maybe just do one go oh, yeah. really well. You're right. It is a bit funny when he's like, oh, I want you to run the Canada's like run the diagnostic or something and do the sort of scenario planning of will this bomb work by itself and he runs it he's like do you know what actually it turns out it probably won't <laughs> it's like, would you not have thought to do that perhaps on earth i don't know yeah 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 let's let it's a long way to go it's like going is this pub open uh because it's a 200 mile drive <laughs> going uh i don't know but let's set off and you know when we're about sort of 50 miles away i'll probably go on google oh it's not open it's not open what a nightmare that would be god <laughs> right that's my that's that's my comparison to saving humankind 
driving 200 miles to a pub that's not open. Uh, so the ship's navigator tray now manually overrides Icarus and sets some new mm. coordinates. Mm. But um, this new trajectory uh, changes the angle of approach to the sun, which fucks everything up. Their sensors burn up. Uh, the ship's now damaged. The hydraulics are screwed. And so they've got to do something about this. And mm. Captain... Because Trey... Trey- Trey's not very good at his job. No, I, it's, it's the short answer. It's like it, it, unbelievable. Killian Murphy can't work his bomb. Trey goes, shit, <laughs> I forgot to readjust the thing that keeps us alive on this ship. It's like it, it, this crew, like, did you just, did you run out of people after Icarus 1? Because were they, were they the good ones? And these were the people who didn't quite make it onto Icarus 1 because they were a bit rubbish, but we've got no one else. Yeah, well, so the, we're going to put them on Icarus, Icarus 2. Icarus 1 were the best of the best and Icarus 2 were the second best of the best. Um, Maybe right, and as it turns out, not good enough. Uh, they don their gold spacesuits. Uh, what did you think of the uh, these suits that they have to wear in this film? Love it. I think they're absolutely brilliant. This is the kind of thing that, honestly, it's these little designs that make a sci-fi movie great, in my opinion. Something that you haven't really seen before, um, and I think they're they're really cool. And I believe, I mean, you'll know, Chris, because um, this is your movie. But um, I believe that like this sort of went against NASA's recommendations. Like Danny Boyle had all this advice from NASA about what the suit should look like. And he went, yeah, uh, I'm going to make them gold because they look <laughs> freaking awesome. Yeah, I mean, you, they wouldn't have. They, there's a reason the suits look like they look and are designed like they're designed uh, in real life. Uh, but he liked uh, the idea of this gold because they do use gold leaf on their shields near the sun in reality. That's what you would use. So he just sort of oh, really? s- oh, stole that cool. concept. But yeah. he's not as Danny isn't as big a fan of these suits as you, uh, Alex. He says in the book. Oh, really? He, he says in the book, there were so many people involved in making them that when we finally got to the end, they became very, very compromised. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> I like the fact that he calls them the Kenny suits because they look like Kenny from South Park. That's <laughs> they do. With the- <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and also an interesting uh, thing to note here is that there's been no yellow on the ship at all uh, up until this point. And so when we go out and we, we see them in their gold suits in front of the sun, it's, it makes that sort of image even more powerful. But they go out there. You do get the feel... You- you do get the feel because I know that, that he made them very claustrophobic intentionally for the actors. So the helmets were built to fit a camera inside and they only gave them that little vertical slit to help the actors' performances. And I genuinely tried to imagine, I know you're on a film set and all the rest of it, but being sealed in a suit like that and probably needing someone else to get you out of it when you wanted to get out of it, I, I think would have genuinely made you feel a little bit nervous and anxious being trapped inside something that big. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so they're outside, they're doing their, uh, they're trying to fix the ship. They do a good job of fixing it, but it does cause a fire in the oxygen garden. Um, <laughs> this is another point I wanted to see if there's, there's some things in the script which that annoy me possibly more than I can get over. Like Trey not being very good at his job, I think is an unforgivable placeholder kind of thing in the script. But the computer, did you think that the computer, so we'll call her Icarus, she's a bit coy? Like... She's like, they're like, Icarus has taken over. Icarus, state reason. She's like, I've taken over. State reason. Well, there's a fire in the oxygen garden. It's like, do you want to tell, when something's on fire on the ship, tell me first. 
don't make me have to ask you a question. Then you're like, well, I can't do this because there's a massive fire. Like, it doesn't seem like an alarm system or a, it's it's like they're having a conversation with a human who's withholding information on purpose in order to progress the script. And I yeah. don't like that. Later and in the again, film, would you like example? Just... Sorry, go on, Alex. No, I was just going to say it's another example of these lot being crap at their job because they go, it doesn't. We're going to lose a communications tower. Uh, that doesn't matter. We can't speak to Earth, but it's that communications tower that fizzes in the sun's heat that then blasts the rays into the oxygen garden. So them being flippant, like fuck it, don't need that communications tower, is what causes the fire. It's another really stupid decision by this crew. Yeah, Vicky, Why would you like here? would you like the ship a bit later in the film to say to them? You know that Mark Strong is always a villain. He's just got on your ship. He's just <laughs> got on here. It is Mark an amazing Strong. moment where Kappa's talking to the computer and she's like, but Kappa, you won't make it. And he's like, oh, give over, computer. I'll be fine. She's like, but there's another person. It's like, for fuck's sake, dude, when the person gets on board, tell me then. Don't tell me now. He, he's the man who disengaged the airlock back in <laughs> Act 2. It's <laughs> like, so, no. That would have been really useful. Yes, it was manually disengaged. It wasn't an accident. Someone's done that to trap yeah. you on that ship. Yeah. Uh, but it's quite a dramatic scene in terms of the visuals and the music of Canada uh, burning up in the sun while Searle it's is asking incredible. him. Searle's yeah. asking what, him what, what he you sees. See? Yeah. That's so cool. I just he's going to die, that. though. Yeah. Searle, he's going to die. Ask him if he's got a message for his loved ones at home. Don't keep asking no, him what you see. No, because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Yeah. He wants this, like, rapturous experience. I, I think the stuff around the madness is really well done. Maybe it falls apart a bit when I got annoyed about Mark Strong just talking about men all the time, and obviously that's more my problem, but... I think the idea that the, you can be in communion with angels and with gods is even more terrifying than Event Horizon, which is you're in communion with, with the, presumably with the devil, but with demons and things like that. I just thought it was um, mesmerizing. The bit, you're absolutely right. This whole, this whole sequence and Searle going, Canada, what can you see? What can you see is a real, like, it's a sucker punch of a moment because for exactly that reason you just said, he is wanting the epiphany that Canada is having that he can't have. And his frustration at the end of that, when Canada is just so absorbed in his epiphany that he doesn't relay the information to Searle and Searle looks heartbroken that he never got to know what Canada saw is fantastic. Yeah. He's, and he's the, I think the film does a really good job of reinforcing, like, as compared to Event Horizon, if you don't believe in hell and you don't believe in this sort of, you know, in a, in a deity, it's still very scary, but it might not quite have the impact that you, you cannot avoid the fact that scientifically, not to sound too much like Brian Cox, but we are all made of stardust. <laughs> so, we, so we do have a connection to the sun that's different from a connection to hell because maybe our connection to hell is a creation, is an invention or is a, is a fairy tale or a fantasy or whatever. But your connection to the sun, especially for an atheist, is undeniable. So it's really powerful. Uh, uh, FYI, menswear, the Britpop band, their best single was called Stardust. Just on the Stardust front. <laughs> I used to like menswear. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Bobby Boy's full of bravado. His girlfriend <laughs> looks like Bridget Bardaho. He got drunk and crashed his car. He is such a superstar. Oh, yeah. yeah. Stardust, great song. Um, oh, should we go uh, to an indie disco soon? Oh, no. wait, oh, <laughs> oh no. man. Oh, I'd love that. After the break, Chris. After the break, shall we go to an indie disco? Yeah, we could. <laughs> Let's go to the break first. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This week at Sukarnov. Me and Luke have been whiling away the lockdown with our usual nonsense on the Luke and Pete show. Here's a quick taste of the kind of challenges we've been setting for ourselves. Give us any nation and I'll tell you yeah. why they're dirty. All right, I'll do it now. Um, right. uh, Italy. Italy, yeah. it looks like a sexy boot. <laughs> There's also a brand new episode of On the Continent, your weekly guide to the sublime and frequently ridiculous in European football. Find it over on Football Ramble Presents every Thursday. Neymar's responded to this in kind that they forgot to tell you um, how to win titles. Then Alvaro has responded with a picture of Pelé with three World Cups going <laughs> in the eternal shadow of the king. This reminds me of Stormzy and Wiley. The sports <laughs> that they have. All that and a whole lot more at Sukarnov. And we're back. And Harvey is now uh, the captain. The shields and the payload are intact, but they don't have enough oxygen to get themselves and the payload to the delivery point. So they Idiots. have to rendezvous with Icarus One. That's their only hope. Yeah, but and they this were is... going to rendezvous with it anyway. That's so annoying. Yeah. Like structurally, there is an issue. You were going there anyway. It annoys me. Sorry, carry on. And, 
And this is where we get our next moral quandary because Corazon reveals that there is enough oxygen, but for four of them out of the seven, they can make it, but only four of them could go. Um, and she's not having that conversation with the uh, she's not having that conversation with the new second in command now, Captain Harvey. Though she's having a little sort of a cheeky conversation with Mace, and is it is it Rose Byrne is the other one? Like they're having a secret conversation. It all seems a little bit Machiavellian for a crew that is all about diplomacy and debate. They go, "I'm going to stand in this corridor rather than announce this, <laughs> but we're probably going to have to kill some people." Anyway, <laughs> thoughts. I'm thinking that now they're not quite so sure about Harvey. I think they've been seeding it into the film that Harvey's got issues in terms of he just wants to get home. Um, I think it's noticeable that scene where they do see uh, Mercury. Um, they're all looking at it, but he's kind of looking at the ground. He's not looking at it. He's not interested in what's around him. I think the idea is is that he's thinking about home. And so I don't know if Corazon thinks Harvey's up to the task at this point. Mm. Yeah, so they uh, enter. Agreed. Uh, they enter Icarus One um, uh, at this point. Uh, and they make a joke about alien, so it's a little bit self-aware here that it's all getting a bit alien. Um, apparently, the dust uh, all around the ship was Cornish pasty dust. <laughs> now, I thought that can't be true, but he says it on the commentary, and it, it's brought up in the book, so I believe. Delicious. That- <laughs> so wait, yeah, wait, 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 wait. What is Cornish pasty dust uh, as the first point of order? What? What? what <laughs> When, when have you ever? How is that even a sentence? You can't have just you, go. It's Cornish pasty dust. Like everyone's like, oh, <laughs> the dust from Cornish pasties. Have you ever eaten a Cornish pasty, Alex? Yeah, I crumbs. bet you haven't. You get <laughs> a, a. You get. I do. I bloody used to love a Cornish pasty. Like you, you get flakes and you get crumbs. At no point have I ever come away from eating a pasty and go, I'm covered in dust. Oh, that was a dusty pasty. Uh, but what's that stuff on your fingers? It's it's Cornish pasty dust when you finish eating it in the bottom it's of the flakes. bag. It's it's flakes. It's uh, flakes. If he'd said Cornish pasty flakes, oh, we can have a conversation, Danny Boyle. Cornish pasty dust. I, I don't know you. <laughs> well, well, in this scene, we now the next thing we see is a, another creepy video diary from Mark Strong, who says um, it is not our place to challenge God. We are Cornish pasty dust, is what he says. So. <laughs> I was going to say, as an atheist, I do feel a very strong connection to Cornish pasties, and it is so powerful to be linked to pasties in that way. Undeniably mesmerising. I, uh, I too, I too am an atheist, uh, but Cornish pasties are my god. So a uh, bit of a quandary, a bit of a quandary there. Uh, so they discover that the ship has been sabotaged and they find uh, the burned up corpses of the crew in the observation room, which is chilling. Sat, sat in front of an altar of Cornish pasties that they've constructed. <laughs> it's an amazing scene. Uh, and suddenly more sabotage happens. Their airlock is destroyed. The ships are drifting apart and they've only got one suit uh, to get back to the ship, um, which after a bit of an argument, they decide Kappa will take it because he's the one that can complete the mission. Yeah, and they, Chris Evans have, decides that because it's yet another example of Chris Evans being the Don in this movie. Like he doesn't even think about himself. He's like, let's get Kappa back because he can use the bomb and save mankind, which is why we're all bloody here. Right? Why don't you and Chris Evans get a bloody room then, Alex? All right, we get it. We get, get given it. the option, I would in a heartbeat. You don't even have to ask me twice. I'll book the room. You tell me where. <laughs> so we have to do our old sci-fi favorite here, which is a slingshot. Yay! Um, <laughs> thing that Ben Affleck takes the piss out of on the Armageddon commentary. This made-up Hollywood term. Um, <laughs> so they've got to travel 20 metres through space at 273 degrees Celsius without suits on. A couple of them do. Mm. Um, and it doesn't go well. 
Um, so in this sequence, <laughs> in this sequence, we lose Harvey. Harvey just kind of drifts off and you sound cracks like, up. You sound like you sound like what Icarus would say, like because she's so weird. She'd be like, "Well, that didn't go well." P.S. I've Icarus. got four more suits here if you need them. You just have to ask. Icarus, but, what are our chances of survival? Oh, gee, that's a question, isn't it? Uh, 50-50? I don't know. I'd have to run some calculations. Uh, they lose Harvey, who kind of breaks up in, the, in space. Um, can, we, and- can we take a moment here? I just want to mention, I think this is such a brilliant moment. His death, bearing in mind who he is and what he wants and his desire to go home and his desperation to survive. The bit, and this is my reading of it, where he's floating away in space, having failed to get in the airlock, and he unwraps the foil from his eyes. I think at that moment, he's expecting to be safe on board the Icarus 2 in the airlock. And I think you can read it in his eyes when he pulls that back and the terror that he is in his eyes when he realizes he's floating to his death is palpable because wow, I think yeah. I, I I don't think at that moment because he's blindfolded I think the emphasis there is, is the fact that he does not know he's not safe at that point and it's only when he removes the foil that he's like oh my god I'm dead it's so wow. powerful that is, if that's what it is then yeah you're right I didn't I didn't get that reading but I like yours because you'd be floating weightless in the airlock anyway at that point so that he w- he would be anticipating seeing Mace and Kappa saving him at that point and it's not what he sees and it's so dark. Mm. He's portrayed as kind of the coward in these scenes but I really feel for him to be honest. I don't blame him for these emotions that he's going through and it's quite a sad death. But that, that's yeah because that's that that would be like any of us in that situation wanting to wanting to get home but then any of us wouldn't have got through the test to go on a fucking spaceship to the sun that's yeah. why he shouldn't be there do yeah. your due diligence you got he a prob- psych officer who's literally faces coming off from sunshine and like a second in command who literally should be the 10th in command on earth not on the ship <laughs> Uh, the psych officer does get his uh, wish now because our cell burns up in that observation room yeah. Um, which it's is cool. A- I mean, it's it's a weird thing that it's a, it's a death, and obviously you feel sad for him. But are you not a little bit jealous? Like, do you not want to be so focused on achieving bliss, and you know how to get it, and it happens for you? And he doesn't look he doesn't look disappointed. That would be dark if his epiphany was like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. But it looks brilliant, and what a way to go. Because also the other way of looking at that is if he wasn't going to have that epiphany, because you're right, he sort of ends happy, but it would have been far darker if they just left a man alive on that ship with uh, oxygen, but limited food and just sort of floating there until what? He chooses to kill himself and end it or or whatever. That would have been much darker, but you're right. He sort of ends, his is a happy ending. His arc is a happy one of all of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and now we've got another moral quandary because uh, two have just died and they realise that if Trey now dies, uh, they can make it to the payload. They've lost the three people that they needed to lose. So it's it's that question of one life versus uh, the future of mankind. And so they have a bit of a debate um, about it. I think there's some nice dialogue here. Cassie is the one who refuses. Um, doesn't think it's the right thing to do, but they nevertheless uh, press ahead and decide to kill Trey. Um, but yeah. by the time they Mace gets of, to him, he's already want, dead. They, they want their cake and eat it in that scene, yeah, exactly. though, don't yeah. they? Because it's like she she goes through the thing where she like three of them vote yes, and then we still hang around like her going, "I just, I really, 
I can't. And you see her sort of like her breakdown. And like, you don't need that. Because at any point, Chris Evans can go, that's it. It's three against one. We don't need to see you having your moral quandary because we've mm. already voted. And yet we sort of, sort of hang around like her vote's important just for the emotion of her uh, crying mm. over this decision, which is completely unnecessary. What, you think it's unnecessary to have that conversation? It's I unnecessary agree, yeah. for, for her to, for anyone to care about her vote after three have voted yes, for the scene to carry on with her going, I can't, I don't know, no, I can't, it does, it's not worth it. Because, you know, it ends with Chris Evans going, it doesn't matter what your vote is, which he could have said five minutes earlier. <laughs> And here we've got Danny Boyle ripping himself off a little bit here because that, that conversation they have is so similar to the scene in Shallow Grave when they're deciding who cuts oh, up yeah. the body. And then oh, when yeah. he, he, he bursts in and finds um, Trey already dead, that shot we get of him coming into the room and we're looking at it from Trey's foot is the same yeah. in Shallow Grave as well when we see the dead body in Shallow Grave and they burst yeah. in the door. Yeah. Um, I, um, I have a question. So if, uh, if you've voted to kill uh, one of your crewmates who is pretty much uh, out of his head unconscious on tranquilizers and sedatives and you, you plan to kill him, surely your first idea of how to go about that isn't a fucking scalpel. Yeah, surely you go, I'll, I'll probably overdose him with something while he's already out. You know, I'll just yeah. I'll put I'll put an excess of something in his body. I'll just overdose him on tranquilizers and give him a peaceful yeah. death. Not not Chris Evans. He goes he goes. All right then, it's slicing and dicing time. Where are you, Trey, you bastard? <laughs> well, it's this true is because Roseburn even says, "Oh, do, give him a show him a kindness," and it's like, yeah, no problem, yeah. because he's already yeah. hopped up on medicine. So we'll right. just crank that up a notch and he will slip away into the night. No problem. Which is, oh, no, I'll tell you what, I'm going to stab him to death. <laughs> they, even go, they, even go, they even go, what? how are you going to do it, Chris Evans? And he goes, that's between me and Trey. I bet it bloody is. Because anyone else would have gone, don't, 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 you're not going to stab him though, are you? Uh-uh. No, 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 no. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Are there scalpels in there? Why? Just another reason. Just no, I don't know because I'm going to stab him. I just like collecting scalpels. But they're, they're in there. Are they brilliant? <laughs> Well, this is when the film starts going off the rails because this is when it turns into horror because I think the idea for that is to show that there are two of the scalpels missing when he opens the drawer. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, we learn that, as Vicky mentioned, uh, the, 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 the ship's computer tells um, Kappa that there's five crew members still on board, which means Pinbacker is there. So Pinbacker has stolen the, the knives and has slit Trey's wrists himself. And so, oh, um, yeah, is that's that what's your reading there. of that? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, it's definitely what's happened. So, Pinbacker killed Trey. Yeah. Oh, I thought Trey. I honestly didn't see that. I thought Trey had taken I don't his own think, life. I don't I think they make it clear enough. But, no, they don't at all. Um, the idea is, yeah, that there are knives missing. Pinbacker's taken them. He's on the ship and he's killed uh, Trey. He starts killing right. all of them, to be honest. And so, yeah, we're about an hour and 10 minutes into the film, uh, a film that I've loved until this point. And I do think it kind of falls apart from this point onwards. Um, in the book, Danny Boyle says this, this section was criticised because of the execution of Pinbacker. Uh, not Mark Strong's performance, but the way I directed it. People thought it was a shift into something too much like a horror film. Whereas the first two thirds of the film is actually procedural, hardcore sci-fi with realistic deaths and issues. Um, I love doing that shift. We did something similar in 28 Days Later. Hmm. Can you I, um, give yourself over to this? I don't mind the shift at all. I think it's flawed, but not for the reason that it shifts into horror territory. 
I'm totally with the shift. I think it's fine that Mark Strong turns up and starts killing people. I think it gives for an action-packed sort of climax, running scared on a ship. I'd I'd rather that than sort of some philosophical musings that take us into the very end. But I do think there are issues with it, um, which we'll get to. But what do you guys think? I like it. I don't. I, <laughs> the first time I saw this film, <coughs> I thought Mark Strong was actually an angel, and so it gave it another dimension. Of not only is he like a horror baddie, but he's an angel. I thought that he had been completely exposed to the sun and survived, and so was some like a supernatural being. And it's only on this watching that I figured out that he'd just been in that the room, the altar room for too long and that's why he's got no skin left but he is a person that is alive and so he's much more of a like a normal baddie but i still liked it i i the i think what you are suggesting maybe is that the the actual shots of him are frustrating because you don't see enough of him um you don't see enough of what he looks like underneath all that um gooey skin and i would like to have seen that maybe really i think i see i think it kind of works not seeing him i think I think sort of some of the blurring, the out of focus stuff is a bit like, oh, this is a cheat, really, having having him shimmering instead of us seeing him. But certainly when Killian Murphy first finds him lying in the observation deck and that speech he gives and he's just like the the light washes him out completely. I think that's a really scary scene. Yeah. He kicks off that speech, which is kind of like his Blade Runner speech. Um, <laughs> he says, are you an angel? Which is a, <laughs> a phantom menace line. <laughs> from uh, <laughs> the worst line in The Phantom Menace, which is a strange way to kick off your speech. But um, in, in terms of that visual, um, yeah, Danny Boyle isn't sure that he pulled it off. Um, he said, I was arrogant. When we did 20 Days Later, I said, leave the zombies to me. And I said the same with Pinbacker. I wanted to make him spectral, a part of the crew's mind. You'd never be sure if he was there or not. He's the argument that goes on inside their minds. But I thought monsters were no problem. I know how to do these. And if you start to think like that, you're not pushing yourself enough. You should always be at the point where you don't know what you're doing. And in hindsight, mm. he thinks he should have used motion capture to get Mark Strong's performance rather than um, bloody Ooh. him up and then used mirrors and, and what have you to sort of make him look like this specter. Well, that would okay. have been interesting. Yeah, I, I like that idea. Yeah, correct, Danny Boyle. Wrong and then correct <laughs> in your hindsight. Uh, and I think there's also an aspect of Colonel Kurtz as well to to the Pimbacker character here, which is something else I think um, Alex Garland keeps coming back to. There's there's a there's a Kurtz-like <laughs> character in the beach. I think Eccleston's character in Twenty Days Later is has gone all Colonel Kurtz, and then we've got the same thing here. So he does keep coming back to these themes, doesn't he? Of of of, of Kurtz and God and and or a lack of God in the universe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so he turns out the lights and he's running around stabbing people. Um, poor old Corazon <laughs> gets stabbed in the back um, just as she's, she's discovered the green shoots of hope in her garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's heartbreaking. I think it's a great moment. It's really upset. It really upset me. In, bo- in fact, that was one of the scenes that upset me both times of watching. I think it's great the way she's sort of like taken from the dizzying heights of pure joy to being stabbed in the back. Cruel. Um, and then we've got a few things going on at once here. So Pinbacker's chasing uh, Cassie around the ship with a knife. Uh, Mace is underwater with his coolant. Sorry, under coolant, um, trying to save <laughs> everyone. Um, and Kappa is... It's coolant. No water, <laughs> coolant. 
Uh, and Kappa is working on the payload, trying to force the bomb um, into the sun. And so, um, you know, we, we get more and more of um, Pinbacker talking bollocks. Uh, what is it? it says, for, for seven years I spoke with God. He told me to take us all to heaven. Um, I'd like uh, that. <laughs> Do you know? I was touched by it. I was moved by it. I, he just lost me when he's like, there'll be one man left. Oh, fuck off. But the rest of it, I buy that. De- like, definitely. I just don't think he yeah. explains himself sufficiently. Like, no, it does sound it. like a lot of bollocks he's saying. When I think there was an opportunity <laughs> here for them, um, for him to explain his philosophy a bit better so that I can kind of understand where he's coming from. Because he, okay. he goes from, he does, you're right, he goes from sort of these big philosophical statements to then standing over Rose Byrne's body and going, she fought so hard to stay alive. And you're like, so he's sort of, he's aware of like, he's aware of like the fact that he's committing murders yeah. in a way that is very real and yeah, not right. part yeah. of some philosophy that he's doing the right thing. You're right. If he's an if he's close to an if he believes he's like our last emissary and he's the closest thing to an angel that the human race has because of the communion he's had with God, he would have transcended morality at that point. Exactly. And he yeah. wouldn't. He first of all, he wouldn't want to murder anyone because what it's nothing. It doesn't that would doesn't make any sense. And if he did murder someone, he wouldn't know what that is by that point. He needs to be so nuts that n- none of it is grounded. But the bottom line of his his whole. Thing, when you sort of pull away all the um, all the guff, um, he wants to stop them sending the bomb into the sun because he's been told by God that actually, who is the sun, that it, it's mankind's time is up and the reason yeah, the right. sun is dying. Right, yeah, okay. Allow, he, 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 he wants to allow nature to take its course, to run its course and yeah. destroy humankind. And But he doesn't really explain it in so many words, which I think is okay. a missed opportunity there. Um. So they're now on the bomb, and I found this a little bit frustrating. Some of the visuals here, I guess they're going in all directions, but the gravity's the gravity's pulling them all into the bomb, no matter what side they're standing on. Um, yeah, but the visuals kind of distort, and we we lose all sense of geography here. Which, yeah. so I'm not really sure what's going on. Um, which is a fair point, and also. It, it, it sort of skirts over things that you really feel that you want a little bit of closure on, or it doesn't explain stuff properly. For example, like Rose Byrne is—I think she's killed off-screen. You never really find mm. out her demise, and also there's a bit where suddenly the bomb is malfunctioning, and Killian Murphy has to do it manually, which is uh, not explained uh, very well at all with any clarity. I don't think there's a deleted scene that I found which is actually really good. And you wonder why they took it out. And I think maybe there's a little bit of repetition or they replaced it with another scene because he uses the same line in this deleted scene, which is on YouTube of going, I spoke to God for seven years. And it's him sitting on the edge of the bomb, very relaxed, just talking to Killian Murphy about why he's done what he's done. And Killian Murphy's over Rose Byrne's body. So, you know, Rose Byrne is definitely dead. And then Killian Murphy walks away and Mark Strong doesn't try and stop him at that point, which is kind of strange. And then you first see this idea that the bomb is malfunctioning very clearly and that Killian Murphy is going to have to manually set it off, none of which comes across in the final cut. Okay. And also you get him saying the title of the film in that deleted scene because Killian, uh, Kappa says, I don't believe in God. And Pinbacker says, neither did I, but you'll find him in the sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> we love that. 
I quite like that. that, yeah. We love that. Um, and so um, Kappa does the business, really. Um, he uh, saves them and stands on the bomb uh, as it's going into the sun and kind of puts his, his hand in the air as if he's kind of making first contact with something. Um, Danny Boyle wanted, wanted Kappa, wanted Killian Murphy to cry at the end in this scene. But Murphy had a cold and his tears kept his tears kept drying up in front of the lights, so they couldn't get that scene. That shot. <laughs> oh. um, and here's something you might find controversial. Um, I can cry. I can cry. I've got a cold. On any other day, I'd be I'd be bawling my fucking eyes out. Uh, Danny Boyle says of this scene, we tried using the Coldplay track Fix You at the end. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Let me finish. Okay, carry um, on. Sorry, he's sorry, a, he's sorry. A, he says, it felt too cheesy, but boy, did it make me cry. <laughs> we used score instead, but we should have gone proper cheesy. You're not meant to like these songs, but they work. When Fix You was at the end of Sunshine, I certainly felt like I'd been moved. So he regrets yeah. not looking at Chris Martin, not using Chris Martin at the end there. No. It is a it's a Coldplay song that I like uh, as well. I I could I I think you know you know I love a bit of cheese. You stick fix you at the end of that. I'd have been bawling my eyes out. Yeah, it's it, it's the sentimental choice, but it is a pretty song, and it would have moved me. But I'm equally very glad that he didn't, especially as the score is so good in this film. Um, yeah. You know, we would have missed out on that. And then the the final shot is of um, Kappa's sister watching his video message while walking through some snow near the Sydney Opera House, and. Um, uh, she Very sort of Planet of the Apes, isn't it? Yeah, we yeah. hear his audio as 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 the sun um, returns. <laughs> so we get a happy ending in 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 actuality. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that actor uh, who plays his sister Paloma Beza, She's a filmmaker as well as an actress, and she made a series of short films with Killian Murphy, and she knew Danny Boyle, and she's the one who told Danny Boyle to to meet with him for twenty eight days later. So that's how come he's in this film. Oh, a good fact. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, that's that is sunshine in a nutshell. Um, uh, the only other quote I've got from Danny Boyle is him <laughs> saying in the book, um, "I spent way too long editing this film. Uh, we lost all the feel of sunshine after a while." So he's not sure he got it. He really nailed this one, sadly. And it, it, um, I, I didn't realise. I sort of remember a lot of people talking about this at the time, but it did very little business. I, it, I don't even know if it made its money back. I'm sure it probably did eventually, but it wasn't the hit that you'd expect from a Danny Boyle joint. No, it did okay in England, in, in the UK, as all his films do okay here, but it didn't really do anything in the States, which is where it, that needed to happen. So all the goodwill he'd had from, from his previous couple of hits, kind of he used <laughs> up with this one. So oh. should we do the bits? Yes. All right. Uh, Alex, you sound keen. What is your favourite scene? Um, okay, my best scene, and I... I'm, I genuinely believe this i think this is one of not the, just the best scene in this film but one of my favorite scenes of all time in science fiction i just think it's incredible which is canada's death scene and the way it's all cut together so we've got the fire in the oxygen garden and michelle yo and her attachment to that oxygen garden reminds me of a, a movie that broke my heart as a kid which was bruce dern and his relationship to the domes of nature in Silent Running. And you really get that relationship. So you've got that going on. You've got Canada sacrificing himself, Killian Murphy going, he's not moving. Why is he not moving? All of that set to it. And you just mentioned it. That score, John Murphy, Adagio in D minor, it's mm. like, it's, it, it, <clears throat> it 
I've watched it over and over again after watching the movie on YouTube, which you know I want to do, and it's incredible. I think it's just it's such it's it's the high point of this movie, and it's just an incredible science fiction scene. Full stop. Uh, mine is exactly the same, Alex. Oh, is um, it? Oh, all, all I would say is that you know uh, it, I feel like it needs to be seen on a huge screen with a big sound system as well, which is how I got to see it first time, and it doesn't have the same power on the telly like like a few scenes in this film, but um. Yeah, totally agree. How about you, Vicky? Well, the I agree with you that, that about the Canada's death. It is a, an amazing scene, and it made me feel quite euphoric. But the scene that I was most invested in, the scene where I did the sort of like you know uh, biting my fingernails, was uh, Chris Evans's death in the coolant, not water, um, <laughs> because he sells the shit out of that when he puts when he drops his wrench earlier in the film, and he without thinking he plunges his hand in to get it, and you can see how cold the coolant is from just exposing his skin to it for like a second and it looks like his hand's going to come off and now he's got to put his whole body in it many, many times. It's really heroic and I found it really tense and what a horrible fucking way to die. And, and then obviously, I know it's an easy contrast, but the contrast of the below freezing temperature of the coolant with the sun and everybody else gets this rapturous sun death and the hero gets this freezing, lonely, choking, miserable death. It's brilliant. Good shout. Yeah, um, I mean, he does die. He still does die a hero, though, because he does, yeah, I mean, yeah. and I think, uh, you know, I mean, I think he possibly knows he's going to die anyway at that point. Yeah. So it's all a matter of time. But yeah, I do get what you mean. Yeah. Uh, Vicky, what's your MVW most valuable whatever? It's the music, actually, Chris. Um, a joint composition by the electronic band Underworld and composer John Murphy, as we've mentioned. Because the even though I'd only seen this film once, um, there was something on Six Music, you know, like they, they've got that film music uh, thing on a Sunday. And I walked through the room and I heard a clip from Sunshine and I immediately remembered the film, having not seen it for however many years. And it didn't really make that much of an impact on me the first time I saw it. But the music obviously did. So I was like, oh! That's it's incredible. And then when you watch it again, knowing how good the music's going to be, I think particularly the scenes where we lose the geography when Kappa is um, inside the payload and it's really confusing to know where he is and what he's doing. It's the music that gets you through those scenes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danny, Danny Ball said of that of that track, the John Murphy track, he said, I think he had that tune for a long time as waiting for the right moment to use it. So mm. um, he was saving that one for this film. And Danny Ball calls it proper big scoring. <laughs> yeah, <Like. laughs> uh, Alex MBW. Uh, it, well, it it was the the same as Victoria. Actually, I think that the score to Sunshine is incredible, and what I picked for my best scene. I don't know that Canada's death would be quite so impactful were it not for uh, John Murphy Adagio in D minor. So I'm going to pick something else. Uh, Chris Evans is my MBW, and I think I said this on the Knives Out episode as well, but. Watching him in a film like this makes you so happy that Captain America has been retired from the MCU now so he can get back to making other films because he's brilliant. And he's great as Captain America. Obviously, I love him, but it's great to see him stretch himself as an actor and give different performances. And um, yeah, it's nice to have him back. Alex, obviously, we record about a week in advance, but you obviously haven't seen the Twitter news this week that Chris Evans might be returning as Captain America. <laughs> oh for god's sake <laughs> yeah. what so so basically word's gone round someone said that they're trying to figure out a way to to bring him back um 
Uh, they don't know how yet. And he then tweeted news to me with sort of a shrug. So so this might have all changed <laughs> by the time this, this show goes live. But there is a chance he is back. Um, so I'm uh, sorry. Oh. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, Alex. Oh, just Does anyone die in the MCU, really? When's, <laughs> when's, when's Tony Stark coming back in from another dimension, for God's sake? Uh, my MVW, I, I don't think this is the best work by anyone involved in this movie. But we were nearly three for three, Alex, until you changed your mind. Mine is Adagio in D minor by John Murphy. Um, I love that piece of music. I agree with you. It's the reason, a big reason that's my favorite scene. And it's just a piece of music I listen to a lot when I'm writing. Um, And yeah, it's it's amazing. So uh, change. Uh, What would you change, Alex Zane? Um, Well, uh, I'd get rid of that bloody score, Adagio in D minor. Get (laughs) Fix You on there by Coldplay. (laughs) Fucking fantastic tune. That's what you want. Every time there's a bit of drama, bang on some Coldplay. What was he thinking of Dad Joe D minor? And he, and he could have aunt. had yellow. It's about sunshine. He could have used yellow. <laughs> um, uh, no, actually, my bit is it's weird because my bit um, relates to what Victoria said was um, uh, her best scene. Um, my change is um, the awful, um, truly upsetting moment where Chris Evans gets his leg trapped in the coolant and he's going to die. He's going to freeze to death. Uh, I do not need to see that he's wearing sandals. He was my hero oh, for this God. movie oh, and he's got God. bloody sandals on. There's oh. a foot there. All right, we're done. We're done. We're All right, done. now I've got, I've got a real one. I've got a real one. I got a real one. I got a real one. I knew you'd hate that. I got a real one. My real one is this. Um, if we're going to see Killian Murphy's sister and her kids on earth at the end, having been saved, let's see him at the start leaving a message for her, <laughs> not his mum and dad. Because yeah. either leave a message for your mum and dad and we see them at the end going, our son's done us proud. Or have him leaving a message for his sister at the start and then we see her with the kids at the end looking up going, oh, my brother's done us proud. But don't have him leave a message for his mum and dad and then his sister at the end. It's stupid. I mean, I, mean, I just took Correct. it for granted that was a message to his family. No, he says, uh, he, like Ali says, really, so he goes, mum, dad. Dad. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Vicky? So I'm I'm going to have a couple. Is that all right? Because I'm going to say one and then apologise because I absolutely hate within the core of my being that it's Trey's human error that kicks this whole thing off. I fucking hate it. And I think the film lets you think that he's space crazy um, because he sort of comes back to life when the thing with the airlock happens. So it's like, oh, is Trey responsible on purpose for all of these things? But then when he gets murdered slash kills himself, it's like, no, he wasn't. He wasn't space crazy. He's just fucking shit at his job. And <laughs> you have you have to write around that. I, I just can't have it. Um, but I shouldn't be that rude about a script. Writing scripts is difficult and all the rest of it. And I suppose you just get lost in it. And there is so much else about the script, which is amazing. So the change I'm going to have is there's a moment when Cassie is putting Kappa in one of those giant gold spacesuits, and it looked to me like he reached up to give her a kiss and she's in his bunk at some point. So they're, they're close, but we're not quite sure if they're a couple or whatever. So let's just, if we're going to hint at that, let's just go for that properly. Um, and when they're in the payload together, they are, something human is there like, like love or lust or whatever it is, but a human emotion to pin us to that moment. And also, I understand why Kappa hasn't got a family because you probably don't volunteer for space missions that much if you've got a family. Um, but it would just give him a bit more uh, bit more to lose. I mean, I know it's really cold, but it's like it's just his mum and dad and his sister and it doesn't have 
the filmic punch of uh, a romantic relationship. So Rose Byrne and Killian Murphy, you, you're looking for a space bonk, aren't you? You want a bit of a space bonk in here. Zero G sex. Z- yep. Zero G, uh, yeah, sex swing kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't see why not. Thank you. No. Thank you. No worries. It's, no worries. It's interesting. Actually, Danny Boyle addresses that in, in the book, and he talks about the fact that they did discuss uh, a sex scene for those two characters, but their belief was that people wouldn't care or wouldn't want to see that because they're dealing with such a serious issue and such uh the drama is so heightened up there that to slow down for a sex scene would annoy people and so that's why they didn't put one in no serious sex is the best kind of sex in a film when everything's very serious <laughs> and he was serious saying that's why they, they just... <laughs> it's the best in real life what are you talking about let's have yeah. an argument brilliant yep. now we can have yep. sex great yeah oh i'm so bloody angry and serious I i'm seriously you. having sex <laughs> there's, no, there's no joy in this because of the seriousness of it yeah let's just avoid death together okay mm. yeah with some serious sex <laughs> Sorry, Chris, uh, that's gross. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I don't know the tone. Come on, Victoria. <laughs> Come on, Chris. Get it back uh, together. Uh, my change um, is that I don't know really how to put it into words, but I just hate that. I hate the stuff that you said you like, Alex, the, 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 the turning into a horror film, him running around, stabbing people like a slasher. Um, I would like that more philosophical, thoughtful ending because that's, I think that's what the film is, and I feel like it's a bit of a betrayal when it, it, it turns into an action movie. And that deleted scene is kind of what I'm after, the one you described, but I don't think they nailed it in that scene either. I just think there was an opportunity there that they just let slip. So I don't know what the solution is, but I do not like um, how this film ends. Okay. So is it it's verdict for the clock? Re- for the record, I, I, I know you said uh, the bit that you liked, Alex. Victoria liked it as well. It's not just me, didn't you? You liked it too, Victoria. What's yeah, but- that, Sorry. The, the oh yeah, the, the yeah. The are you the thinking about? Yeah. Are you still with us here? Are you thinking about your booze delivery? Is this about the rum that's coming? <laughs> I was having a cheeky look. <laughs> Sorry, I was just. Look, I just thought I could see the DPD van. Can you just not get on my case? <laughs> anyway, little update. It's not here, so my rum is right. not here still, which is a nightmare. Right. Where is the rum? Uh, okay, yeah. So Victoria, I mean, you, Chris, and I uh, did the movies this week. So do you want to guide us through the verdict? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! Yes, I will do that. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, well, we better get yours done. <laughs> you, you, we've done this before. You, this isn't a new feature to the show. Right? <laughs> so you sound like you've never, you've never done... <laughs> What's this bit? I don't know how to do this. All right, well, I think, Alex, we should get yours cleared off pretty quickly because I think you've got a favourite. I'm going to say this. I... I there is no better moment in either film this week than Canada's death. I know I've talked about it a lot, but it is genuinely brilliant. I'm massively underrated Sunshine before this watch. Um, it's tense. It's scary. It has some horrible deaths and some interesting ideas. Um, Event Horizon, um, a romanticism about the film that is sometimes more than the film itself but I'm going to stop wasting your time. It's Event Horizon. It was closer than I thought, but I am obviously voting for the film that screwed me up as a kid and I still think is a brilliant movie, Paul Anderson's best film, and a terrifying journey, and it's Event Horizon. The years have not dulled its power. Uh, Chris? 
Uh, I thought Event Horizon was terrifying when I saw it at the time. It's a very effective scarer and it properly gave me nightmares. But I haven't revisited it since, partly because I was worried that it wouldn't actually live up to my memories. Um, now rewatching it, I see that it's a combination of other better horror movies in terms of both the story <laughs> and the visuals, meaning everything I like was pretty much stolen from elsewhere. But that's also the case with a lot of sunshine. <laughs> and you can add... Event Horizon to list the films that Sunshine rips off, as we said at the start. <laughs> Who's worse, the thief or the thief that steals from the thief? Uh, the thief. And so, um, but I think Sun, I think Sunshine is more sophisticated storytelling and I think the visuals are better. I think it asks more interesting question. Uh, so while it most definitely falls apart in the final third, I'm picking Sunshine for how much I love what comes before. Oh man, okay. All right. One so that's so that's we're finished for this week. So uh, thank you. Thank you <laughs> so much for listening. It's a draw. Hooray. It's really difficult. I I oh, I had really high expectations of Event Horizon, which it didn't meet, and I had really low expectations of Sunshine from the first time, which it obviously surpassed. And I really didn't know which way I was going to go until I was typing up the notes because I don't think either of them quite reach where they're going and Event Horizon to Hell and Sunshine to Heaven. But with Sunshine, it, it's the script issues that undo it for me because it does look incredible. And I think the philosophical issues, it is illuminating. <laughs> Pun. Um, to me, are more interesting and more... They just, they just sort of connect with me as a human being, the idea about we're, we're all made of stardust. But I can't get over the script issues. I just can't. I, I can't. I mean, I know that makes me a pedant, but I can't deal with it. And I have fallen into the trap of believing that a longer version of Event Horizon might help it. So I'm going to pick Event Horizon. Yeah! What, because a longer version <laughs> might help it? What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Let's like, let, let let's ju- let's just ride this this wave and 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 not question that because because we're all saved a, a, a an ugly tantrum on this week's episode <laughs> which which no one no one wants um, yeah so yeah but do you, I mean, do you want I'd... to explain Victoria what what do what do you mean Chris is going to need no, to let's know move for, on uh, let's for get closure let's... <laughs> all right I think that I don't think the script of Event Horizon is a problem. I think it feels artificially short, and I think if there was a bit more time to explore the true horror of what the director has tried to show, it would actually be a just genuinely better film than Sunshine. Um, so I'm kind of judging it on like least worst, but not to sound as like mean as that is. The script issues for me in Sunshine are very, very problematic and the my issues with event horizon just like oh it didn't quite scare the shit out of me as much as it should and that's less of a problem for me so i have to pick it because it's less problematic oh is that right i'll take that yeah i mean i'm just happy that the right film won so yeah i mean you can say anything you can say uh, yeah. uh, you can say that you know it, you just love sam neil when he's all chopped up looking like a centibite that did it for you that turned you on <laughs> I, I it wouldn't bother me whatever it is i think these are difficult times we're living through and uh, you're my friend and I don't want you to fall out with me. And I think with Chris, I've got a bit in the tank still before he gets really pissed <laughs> off with me. So I'm just going to take one for the team this week and hey, I don't want you to don't, be upset. Don't undo. You've done, that's undermining that's like the verdict. It. Now the truth yeah, is oh, out. Now on. the truth is out. <laughs> oh, you see, 
the, the happier Chris gets, the angrier I get. It's no. a very fine balance you've got going on here. It was close. But it was close, but I, it sounds like Sunshine has won now. So I think no, no. it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Event Horizon. Congratulations, right. Event Horizon. Hey, we have well a winner. Uh, right. Let's talk about next week. I gave you a clue on Monday's episode. Uh, and that clue as to the movies uh, we are covering, uh, which was suggested by uh, Dear Clash Potter to be announced on next week's show, the clue was, ah, the traffic in Australia makes me crazy. <laughs> Um, <laughs> let's never relive that moment um, the traffic in Australia makes me crazy Christopher next week you will be covering Mad Max 2 aka The Road Warrior a response hey. worthy hey. of this show <laughs> alright don't force it and Victoria that means next week you are covering Mad Max Fury Road Hooray! Yep. Those are the movies we are covering on Clash Pod next week. Uh, the movies are Fury Road versus Mad Max to the Road Warrior. Very exciting week. Uh, like both those movies. Looking forward to that. Uh, that is us done uh, for this week. Unless there is any other business, Chris, Victoria? No. No. I want my rub, so no. <laughs> All right, you go get your rub. I'll say goodbye. You can leave. Uh, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Back Monday, talking the Road Warrior. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network. 